0: The conversation we were just having prior to starting the recording has me thinking about the biggest blunder of your professional or amateur career. And so Ronnie, I I will, I want to know, I'll give you a second to think and I'll share with you mine, most of our listening audience has heard me talk before about my career on the marketing side in professional sports prior to coming into the nonprofit marketing space. And, and I, I think there are two that come to mind, but the one that physically was biggest was when I had a, a 40 foot tall banner produced and put up on the exterior of a stadium that had a typo in the name of the team captain and, and it It became a bigger blunder because the team was like watching the banner put up. And so there's this bigger reveal. I had two similar to that. One uh, for
1: a new client, and ironically, it was a university president. He was an old friend. And we gave him a middle initial he didn't have on the first letter to his president's circle mailing. So that, that,
0: that was memorable. Get a Like was it I mean, was there just like if there a random cue? Well, he didn't he didn't have a middle initial. He just
1: had it was Clyde Cook, my wonderful president of Viola University and high school player of the year in California in basketball back in the day and a POW, civilian POW during World War II. I could go on about Clyde. What a, wow. a great man. But yeah, we assigned that. The other memorable one was printing a hundred and ten thousand, maybe four-color wall calendars, uniquely with 31 days in June. Wasn't a problem until July rolled around. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, who's who's noticing those things? But yeah, you got to one have of those things, how does it go through all the sign-offs and you know, we to get there? But it did. Yeah. Yeah, Ronnie, think, what about you?
2: Yeah, I think mine, I, the one that comes to mind for me was my first newspaper job. I was working in Vicksburg, Mississippi, and... I was doing, we were doing kind of a series on the sports desk on former players, you know, who had, who had been like stars there and what they've gone on to do since then. And I can't remember the guy's name, but he was a basketball player. And I did the feature, talked to him and everything. And he had done a tryout recently with the Sacramento Kings. And he said that he had gotten a 10 day contract with them. And in my, immature, brash youth. I just took him at his word and never double checked it. And it went to print on that. Sacramento Kings called and contacted us and said, we don't have a guy by that name on here. And I was mortified. And the managing editor called me into his office and I sat down and just said, all right, let's just get this over with. Fully sure I was getting fired. And he said, no, 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 it's just it's a lesson to be learned here. You know, always double check your facts and always do your research. And so, certainly a lesson learned. And for the longest time, it's probably around here somewhere. I had a letter that the Kings had had sent about that, printed and, and framed, <laughs> to remind <laughs> me of that. A reminder. Yeah.
1: Well, it strikes me if you're in Mississippi and you're looking for a safe sports store, I just do something in Brett Farr. I, d- I don't know. It
0: could be. Yeah, he just, there's, there's a handful of folks that are empty. Yeah. The, uh, the way that I had to to reconcile the, the blunder, once I talked to, to my boss at the time, she said, well, you got to go talk to coach. And so the, the coach, the coach was a very solemn, solemn man. And that quietness was actually fearful. Like it, it created more angst and made it worse. And yeah. And, and his response was, well, you got to go talk to Danielle, the captain. And and that's whenever I felt tiny and the weight of it. And, yeah. and I think I was more concerned that uh that he was going to throw me through the wall than he didn't even relate me in my beauty, so to speak. But it, to to your point, like you learned the lessons from it and uh, and he and I are are even contacts today and trade messages every once in a while and yeah. haven't misspelled his name since. So so I guess oh, yeah. if you'd have spelled it right, you probably would have lost touch. So <laughs> that's true. That's yeah, a, yeah. Welcome to Group Thinkers, everyone, the podcast from Arcady Group, And on each and every episode, we have a conversation with someone in the nonprofit working space who is doing something differently, has done something differently. And currently we're in a series of talking to people about their experiences and conversations with leaders and leadership. Conversations. And I am really excited to to welcome today's guest because I consider him to be a leader of many of my leaders and someone who has helped set a tone for the work that we all do. And so I want to explore some of that. So, welcome Jim Killian, CEO of Digizent International. It's thing. Thanks, Justin. Thank you. It's fun to be with friends, old
1: friends, and I'm honored. Thank you.
0: Yeah, Jim, we are equally. And so this is going to be a great conversation. We're excited to dig into it. You know, I think it's it's appropriate to bridge from, you know, those, those blunder experiences to just talk about experiences overall. And, and I, I, I would like to get out of the blunders. Yeah, that's, that's so, that's so <laughs> good. <at what> <laughs> Hey, listen, if we want to stay there, it might get a little mucky, but that's okay. I'm curious, as you reflect on your career, what experiences have most shaped you as a leader?
1: Well, quite seriously, I think we do learn more from our blunders, or hopefully they're not all quite that dramatic, maybe mistakes. But I think of some of those, but mostly I think about people and experiences that have had an impact on my life one that just really kind of snuck up on me at the time. I was inside a nonprofit leading a, a growing team, mostly creatives, and a chance to go to a conference on on managing creative people, leading creative people. And it turned out I was just in my early 30s, and it turned out that some of the early top leadership at Bain were leading this multi-day seminar in, uh, in it was in color in the uh, folder excuse me uh complete with a chinook coming through at 100 and some odd miles an hour during the conference and you know that leads to other stories but that it was an amazing trio of leaders at that conference and they really planted some seeds about the importance of communication not looking at people monolithically and giving people space to be who they are and to achieve. One of the guys was a fellow named Ray Fultz. And just to show the age, look at look at the font on, on the book that book cover. Great looking font. This is an old book. And um, one of the things he said early on in the book, I just pulled off the shelf and had highlighted it way back where. And he said, it's no doubt in my mind that organizations that remember people's innate desire to participate, understand, and contribute, if you remember those desires and all you plan and do, that your organization will be at the top of the heap in 1980. That's 43 years ago, guys. And why did he say that? He said, it's not beyond possibility that people-centered organizations be the only ones in existence oh Oh, my goodness you know people focused organizations at digizen our main value is people are most important Mm. and that you got to live that that's hard the second one would be reading again back in the day max the police classic leadership is an art and leadership jams that follows it up as well but so many fantastic things there And then there was another book that really stuck out, and it was Peter Drucker, you know, who's sage-like. I mean, who else do you know that had tea with the Freuds in Vienna other than Peter Drucker? Right. Think around Peter. It's sort of
0: Yoda. It's the Yoda of the management space.
1: Yeah. I mean, he started with, you know, the landmark study of of management at, at GM, General Motors, back in the late 30s. And so here's a book he wrote in in nineteen ninety-nine. He was looking to this current century, and he said something that he said an increasing number of people who are full-time employees have to be managed as if they were volunteers. They are paid to be sure, but knowledge workers have mobility. They can leave, they are their own quote unquote means of production, which is their well, and boy, that just rocked my world back And I like to think I was living consistently with that because we're in a service business. RKD is all about serving non-profits and helping them reach their goals, and you do it brilliantly, by the way. In a sense, if you work at a nonprofit, you're a volunteer have a volunteer mentality, either formally or informally. And now we are we are staffed by this army of knowledge workers. And they're not hooked to an assembly line at the GM plant in the 1930s. It's up here and it's in here and they can go and do. So anyway, those are just three of the kind of big ideas among many exposures. And when I was younger and quite as young with that last one from Drucker, but really stood on those things and said, what does this look like in my life? What does it look like in my company? What does it look like in my relationships? And,
0: So as a as a leader and you've been a leader, um, you know, at at multiple different stops that we're going to touch on. And I know you as a reader and, and as evidenced, obviously, by by the examples that you just cited. What do you do with that when you find something that you highlight, that you stop down, something that rocks your world? How do you then channel that into the way that you relate to your, your teams?
1: Well, two things. One, I'm thrilled that it's, that now most of my new books are on Kindle. So it's easier to highlight and save and retrieve yes. and serve. Right. These are relics from previous So That's a great question, Justin. It's not automatic. I I think what becomes critical is identifying the big ideas, saying this is worth thinking about, and if it's worth thinking about, then it's probably worth applying, either positively or negatively. And you start, I I just work it through in my mind. I mean, I I had a fourth grade teacher that said to me, Jimmy, your problem is you think too much. Well, I kind of haven't gotten over that. And yet we've got to wed thoughts, feelings, and actions. Or people say we're hypocritical. People say, they, you know, Jim says do this, but he does that on and on. So it becomes a, a discipline, but I'm, I'm one of those who who really believes that it's not just a mental concept that is unrelated to behavior, but there's a way to weather. Right. That's the challenge, is bring them together. And then explore those ideas. You, you've got to have key people around you where, you know, we can't do this alone. What do you think about Again, going back to the the K&R, Katie, Tim Kirsten and I used to go to lunch a couple of times a week. We worked together first nearly half a century ago. Oh, my goodness. And we just had significant conversations. Iron sharpens iron. And, hey, what do you think about or trying to work this out? Or what do you think we should? and, And so you're constantly looking for people that make you better. If you hire beneath you, because you've always got to be the best and you always got to get the attention, you'll have a mediocre organization. And But if you have those gifted people who go beyond you and have gifts you don't have, suddenly the discussions, I had one this morning with two of my key leaders. It,
2: it's life-changing. Jim, I've, I've often heard it said that a good leader knows their weaknesses and surrounds themselves with people who, you know, fill those gaps and, and isn't afraid to say, I don't know this, you do, you handle that. I wanted to kind of look in through your career a little bit, going back almost to the beginning, um, to your college days. I was, I was kind of noticing you got- Miller uh, Fillmore was president <laughs> in those days. And- <laughs> I noticed you got a history degree at USC and then a master's in theology. At the time, were you intending to go? Did you kind of see your path, your career path, in religious ministry, or were you heading that in that direction? And and kind of what what changed course and led to you getting into nonprofit work and things like that?
1: Great question. Um, I started out as pre dent at USC, and then when I I had some experiences that really caught my attention, I worked on a Native American reservation in Nevada once over. And I, I, it, it was painful to see what we had officially done to people and um, a sense of compassion and need for change. That really got my attention. The guy leading the group uh, was a fellow. He had graduated from USC. We were four years apart. He went on to Dallas Seminary. That was a big influence. but. You hear the University of Southern California, most people think it's a state school. It's a private school. And so I had courses in Old Testament by, by design. It wasn't required. Old Testament, New Testament. Fascinating course in intertestamental literature and history from a Jewish rabbi in Hills, And then a biblical archeology theology course. And they were all coming, perhaps except the rabbi, all coming from a very different viewpoint than, than mine. And it was really, instead of really embracing the faith, there were were fairly strident attacks. So I went to seminary and to are there answers to these things? Or am I going to base my life, this conviction on something that doesn't stand up to intellectual scrutiny and who I thought I I had planned to go into a ministry that that dealt with youth. And because I, going all the way back to that, that reservation experience, like, again, just seeing kids are making life choices that are so critical, kind of help them with that. But I didn't feel like I didn't have alternatives. I did work one year in a church and after I, I, I graduated. I was on the staff of the seminary, then one year gone. At that time, I nearly died from a rare disease. I was paralyzed, got pneumonia. I knew I was dying. Doctors knew I was dying, miraculously I lived. I hate to get that punchline away, but I have a lot. I still have some facial paralysis, but then I couldn't say the letter P or B because you need your lower lip to hold up vertically or you can say B like that. So now here I'm trained to speak and teach. Later, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that. And on top of that, I realized working in a, we were in a church of 1,200 adults in a community of 7,900. Township, Hershey, but volunteer labor was just a struggle for me, to be honest with you. And so rather than please people, which I normally would have perhaps done to a fault, after one year, I came back and got engaged back again in fundraising and communication. Again, I could do that in a written way, and I didn't have to speak, and I didn't matter as much if my facial ability came back. So it was a, uh, I don't know if it's a gradual turn, it's more of a sudden turn, but I, I clearly found my calling. I got really comfortable. And when you're in a graduate school, and it was the second largest seminary in the world at that point, all these academics around you my best friend, double doctorate from Cambridge on the faculty. Very stimulating conversation. I put together real philosophy and even theology, if you will, of philanthropy. It's a great place to do that when you're young. And whether I'm working for faith-based organizations or not, I still kind of lean back on some principles there that, that were forged. So it turned
0: out to be an unanticipated benefit. And and that took you through time both at Dallas Theological Seminary and where you were honing your communication skills and your fundraising skills. And, and then in uh, 1981... Well, just before uh,
1: that, just... Just an irony on that, here I am, I'm not 35 years, I'm 34 years old, I'm on the five-person administrative cabinet of the school with some faculty members that had been my profs. They weren't thrilled that I had gone to that point, and my profound thought was, I don't want to do this for 30 more years and get a cheap watch and retire, so... Uh, I, I I started looking for opportunities
0: to help more organizations. Well, and and it's it would be too easy to say the rest of this history, but the history is so rich, right? So, so thank you. The you know, I would say that the next chapter in terms of, of your helping form Killian & Associates KMA, and where you served many roles, including GEO and Chief Creative Officer. I've got a a couple of things I want to ask you about it that I just as you look back on that experience. What are some of the lessons that you learned from helping build such an influential into uh, institution in nonprofit marketing?
1: I learned a lot. First, I started by learning what I didn't know in in 1981. Gosh, that that feels like a different lifetime. There were four of us, three and a half of us really, and in a consulting firm that Kind of that would grow in the KMA, but everybody was kind of an independent contractor, not really. We worked for the same company, but we had to do stem the story. You went, you flirted the client, you visited, you developed a strategy. You wrote the coffee, you came home, you got it maybe you's an artist, maybe you did it yourself. You sent it to the printer yourself. You worked with a letter shop yourself. And it was like, this is crazy. We're not going to be able to scale. So I started visiting, getting all the advice I could and networked into a guy who was executive VP of kind of the hot commercial shop in Dallas at the time. And he just kind of gave me a primer on how you put an agency together because there just weren't models out there. Um, So figuring that out was kind of the first thing. And as soon as you do that, you realize you've got to have systems, you've got to have a way to manage workflow, you've got a a lot of things to put together, and you're we we're growing rapidly, so then you've got questions around, well, okay, what are keys to recruitment? And then if you can find the right people, now what obviously it was even then it hit me it's more than putting them in the right position, and even then sometimes it was the wrong position. But yeah, coming around that, it it you you have to develop. I think a philosophy of hiring, mentoring, training, listening, because it's got to be two ways. If all I do is sit in the in the Lincoln Memorial next to Lincoln and pontificate, it's not going to work. Right. When we hire, we can't. We're not creating IQ. We're not. We're not creating life experiences. We're selecting maybe an educational background, but there's a whole lot that's not gonna interview and say, you know, Ronnie, based on everything you've told me about yourself, it feels like we might have a fit here. And so, you you know, we did testing, we did a variety of things, but okay, so now Ronnie's here, now what? Well, you say, Ronnie, here's what you're gonna do. and you, And you give a list. If it stops there, then you're going to probably frustrate the daylights out of Ronnie and you're probably not going to be successful because Ronnie needs tools that are consistent with our view of how things are done. And in some of those, they're not all parochial. I mean, they could be like any agency does them. Others are more unique. But I would say, so you owe training. You owe systems that give a lingua franca to everyone working together so it's not a fire drill it's it's a team that yeah we're all moving the same direction even though we're differences we recognize specialists here there and the other but going through all of that and there are lots of layers that I've learned more and more about over the years I think the critical thing is I've got to help you understand why and not just what if you're going to be a leader, if you're going to be effective for clients over time, internal and external, you need to know why. If all you know is what, you're going to misapply the whats.
0: Uh, how how big did KMA get? How many people like it? At it's at its heyday. 125. That's a big shot, Jim. Did did the did you find that the well? How did the expression of the why change from five people to 125 people? That's a great question.
1: Uh, you know, in and and starting it many years later, I had learned something way back in, in the, the beginning of, of KMA. I stumbled on it. I, I observed it. And that is, if you can get... The first 12 to 15 people write and build a philosophy of vision and help them understand the why, then you don't have top-down policing and hand-holding. They become self-enforcing, if you will, and they embrace the new people that come on and they tell them, well, this is how we do things. They don't know why we do it that way. And so... You know, getting those first twelve to fifteen right, really building in. In my experience, you hit fifty or so, and and then the dynamic is changing again, because particularly with rapid growth, you've got challenges that are very, very different than the initial. At Digital, we we just we're about sixty five now. Well, I think we did a pretty good job with the first twelve to fifteen and they're they're working that out. But but now with the growth we've had in the pandemic and post pandemic, we've got a bunch of people that we're real, really concerned understand more about things. The other thing that I learned is in each passing decade you get hopefully new opportunity to be better at it because I didn't always handle this well. Sometimes I handle it horribly, and that is I I am totally committed to a no-blame culture. A lot of people say that, but that is really hard to achieve, and you're always sort of battling for it. But placing blame and dealing with it takes time and energy out out of the organization. It also means that I'm going to be less likely to help you, Justin, because... I might be blamed for something you do, and so I go in and help you, and now we're both in trouble. No, thank you. I'm just going to stay on my own. Well, you don't get as much work done. You don't. You don't get the synergy again of those other people that have skills you don't have. And so, by the time we've gotten the digits we're we're just militant about that. And people come in and they, yeah, I've been in the agency where I kind of got beaten up. We'll see, and.
0: Yeah, I- I mean, but honestly, Jim, I, and I appreciate you calling that out. I don't know if I've ever, I I know I've never heard you express it, but you know, we've known each other now almost a dozen years and, and early in our relationship, we worked on some, I mean, albatrosses of projects (laughs) and, and it would be so easy. It would be so easy to, to fall into, well, if Jim would have done this, well, Justin would have done this, like those sorts of things. And, and, that's that's definitely a hallmark that you carry. Thank you. I mean, it's
1: you know, I blow it at times. I'm not perfectly consistent, but I I I we really work hard at that. Mm. And it's amazing how much time you save. It's amazing how much better work gets done. People will say, "How in the world, in peak season, do you turn 200 tasks in a day?" You have to work together. Yeah. Or you're not going to do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Golly, it's so interesting to hear you talk about the people aspect. And it, it's, it goes back to one of the things I said at the beginning. And it's because I have been blessed and shaped by so many people whose lives you have had an impact on. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's fun to, to be in a, in a kind of in an indirect way of the, of the, uh, the tree of Killian. And, and in fact, Jim, I, I asked some of these folks about you and, Uh and so, and I want to just share with you a snippet of the things that, that they said, because I think that it, it, it underscores what you said about the, the people mattering that he showed an example for me and others to raise the bar in how we dressed, spoke, managed time, anticipated client needs. And how to make a priority of growing in your expertise. Someone else said he exudes class and shaped how I work today. And other person said that how that you made a lasting impression on how young adults should present themselves with excellence and deliver an exceptional experience. Someone else told me that you're the ultimate connector and it's Person after person after person, Jim, have, have reiterated uh, and said wow. that the impact that you've made on not just young people, but even on people as they grow in their career on embracing technology, that failing is ex- expected and unavoidable. How do, you think about, how do you think about hearing the words of those folks and, and the realization that you have made that ripple? It's the most significant part of my career.
1: I don't know. I suppose I helped raise a couple of billion dollars. And that's meaningful, obviously.
0: And won some awards for incredible creative pieces along the way. Thank Thank you. you. Yeah. Means to an end. But what's most
1: rewarding, again, it goes back to people. And uh, that's what means most to me in life is that I've been able to help people. Some of those people are in the clients we serve, and and we're caring for a lot of people in Ukraine right now through some of our efforts, for example. But I, the it, when we build into others, now we're multiplying, right? It, and I look at some of some of the people that, at RKD that I was blessed to work with, and uh, I don't know, kind I name names, or is that the uh,
0: Go for it. The we might, we might, think. we might beep them. Like we might beep them just to keep the you know mysterious. Yeah. Yeah. Or Ronnie may dub his name over all of them just to to be clear, over and over again. It'll be my name. What? Well, yeah. Whatever. Whatever works.
1: Well, Amanda Wallison and, and Billy Valderrain were part of the great class of nineteen ninety and um, different backgrounds. Amanda came out of, of Baylor University, and. Uh, she she sort of started at a somewhat menial role, but you could tell from day one, this was an exceptional person. And I like to think I've built into her life. She has contributed so much to my life. She, she absolutely stuns me with the breadth of her brilliance and her ability to come in to a client situation and not only know what to do, but know what's best to do. And, um, but you have an opportunity because it's right out of college. There's not a lot of bad habits formed in terms of our business. And yes, it takes more time, but it's worth it. Again, not, you don't have, everyone doesn't become a, an Amanda who is is so exceptional. But hopefully we pick out the ones that really do, you got to want to get there too. I don't mean they in terms of achievement, but in terms of personal growth and professional growth to handle the challenges of meeting human needs like we do. Amanda certainly had it. Billy Vaudry, we didn't need a new writer, but he'd heard about us and he applied. And, well, what do you got for your portfolio? He had newspaper clippings from his college newspaper that he'd written, and it obviously had almost or virtually nothing to do with what we were doing. But you could tell he could relate. You could tell he had the ability to communicate. And he persisted. I had a, an associate creative director in those days, but a PhD in Russian with, I don't know, that was a weird connection. But he kind of liked Billy and he kept saying, well, I know we don't need anybody, uh, but, but Billy checked back in. and Finally, we had about this much of an opening and said, Billy, would you come join us? Hmm. Well, it was... Uh, it turned out to be a brilliant hunter it was Brian at the time. But again, here's a person that comes with skills, a great family story, and wants to grow and wants to relate to people in an online it goes. Going back further, Tim Kirsten, he wrote me while I was still at Dallas Seminary looking for a new physician. He was in a less an exciting role. I said, well, I'm leaving, but development resources may be hiring. We both ended up there. And uh, for Tim, I've never known anyone who read so voraciously about his craft. He it was intense from day one. Not in the not in a cold sense, but, but he was focused. He was purposeful. So conversations with with somebody, when you're blessed to have a Tim Kirsten in your life, I mean, he just knew he was going to be great.
2: And he was. Jim, you've you've obviously had a, a ton of influence on a lot of people throughout your career. I'm curious who in your career influenced you, shaped you, and turned you into the leader you are today. We all stand
1: on, on shoulders of somebody else, multiple people often. The myth of a self-made person is, is really that. We there's a there's an old book out there called The Turtle on the Fence Post. And you know the old story, if you see a turtle on a fence post, you know he didn't get there by himself. That's certainly me. My I had several mentors. My great mentor was a longtime president of Dallas Seminary, and he gave me quite a quite an invitation to a job, took me to lunch, and said, I'd like you to be my assistant. And it was really related to, to fundraising. He said, frankly, I don't think you can do the job. But my son, who has started agencies in this business, and consultant, to son has three masters and two doctorates. Poor guy. My son says, assures me you can do it. Well, you know, I still marvel that I accepted the job. You now Dr. Walbert and I became close into his 90s in his bedside just three days before he died. And you know, we laugh about it over the year. I really said that to you. Yeah, you really said that to me. But I used to go on with copy, and it would come out hemorrhaging. I mean, it was—it was just bleeding red ink. Um, and uh, he and his his son and you know his son and I are still good friends. At lunch yesterday, we had to deal with occasionally. cave would here. your problem is you're not thinking straight. You know, What's to come back to? You're not thinking straight. You know? Yes, I am.
0: <laughs>
1: right. There's no way that I.
0: Really uh, yeah, in the yeah, I don't know what to do with that, you know. That's a so turtle he, trying to get off of a fence post at that point. Yeah,
1: go hide, go underground, go get back in your shell. My goodness. So he he was a huge influence. Um, I was blessed with a good undergraduate education. I really felt like I, I learned how to say the U.S.C. And that was, that was helpful. I wasn't especially close to any one faculty member there because I was very engaged in other leadership activities. But um so so Dr. Walford would be it. But then I have to say I learned from books and, and reading people a lot smarter than me. Going to seminars, I mean it on the one hand he's kind of looked at as leadership like, but Ken Blancher, you know, the one manager guy and all the follow on to that, went to a seminars of his and and Gosh, I just had practical things. Ended up meeting Ken some years later, tried to do a video interview. Ken had driven all night from New York to Boston in a camp. He'd been speaking there and he was going to speak at the conference I was a part of in Boston. If so we're doing this interview, I don't remember who we're interviewing, but Ken's laying on the bed snoring away. I mean, just utterly so unself prepossessed, but just a wonderful man. Again, a lot of a lot of helpful input there. I learned from some of my clients. I've been blessed as 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 you guys have. We're able to serve a lot of really extraordinary people, and I'm always looking back. I'm amazed that some of the people I didn't think I'd like as CEOs I liked most and became closest to, and some that I thought, gosh, it's going to be great to work for this person, and and, and they were less. So I learned from clients. And then the other, the other thing I would say is I, I learned from my colleagues. Let's go back to Tim, Amanda, and, and Billy, just as a, a quick three. They all had taught me things that I needed to know. Each of them has skills I don't have. Gosh, how blessed can you be? You know, it's we get to work with you. I get to work with people like you, Justin, for a dozen years. You know, we don't see each other all the time, but your skills you've got so many skills that I could go to class the rest of my life and not achieve. And, and Ronnie, you know, I'm, I'm stunned by all the things that I'm learning about what you've done. You know, you've got skills I don't have. So I think it's part of it is don't close yourself off to learn it. Don't have to be the guru, be the one who's going to school with whoever is ready to go to school with you. And, you know, be grateful for what you can pick up because I don't bring enough on my own.
0: Well, Jim, I, uh, you never know whenever you start these conversations where they're going to go, frankly. And and even if you start to line up topics and those sorts of things. And, and so I just, I want to say thank you for opening up uh, your career and your, you know, sharing these insights. And I can tell you, Ronnie and I have both, been challenged and blessed by him today and I know that our our audience is going to be as well
1: well thank you I mean it, 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 it sounds like a cliche but the privilege is really mine you guys have enriched my life today and it helps to look back and think about the people in your life that have brought you here today I didn't get here alone one of the things I do with they and help me my parting thought here is most Fridays although it's become a part of the culture I don't have to do it every Friday I post something in our team chat to remind them of at least one significant conversation this weekend. If people are most important, you know, we have all the little things. This is a significant conversation. Thank you for this significant conversation. But we need that. If people are most important, let's talk to them. Let's, let's listen to them. Let's get a little bit beyond. How are you? Oh, great. Fine. That doesn't carry us to where we need to go, where we want to go. Life is much richer than that, and people are amazing. So, thank you, thank you for the t- great um, fun for me. I'm blessed and privileged to
0: share it with you. Thank you. Uh, you're you're so welcome, and we appreciate it. If you uh, if you like this conversation, I think there's nowhere to go but down by listening to any of our other podcast episodes. Uh, I but, do listen uh,
1: occasionally. You'd be surprised. <laughs> I,
0: have I gotta, remember, I've, got to,
1: I've got to read Ronnie's post on AI I just saw that earlier today so yeah, I, I gotta go there exactly
0: next. but there are plenty of other resources available on RKD group's website rkdgroup.com and we'll uh, be sure to to tag other episodes that are related to this one. And again, Jim, we, uh, we appreciate it, man, And we, we can't wait to, uh, to see you again. We don't need to have as much time go by next time. Okay. Thank we'll you. Do it I look
2: forward to it. Thank you. Thanks,
0: Thanks guys. We'll see ya. See ya. Bye-bye. Group Thinkers is a production of RKD Group. For more information, visit rkdgroup.com slash podcast. Special thanks to our production team, including the talented Ryan Mellinger for his work on mixing every episode. Also a shout out to the content team that helps pull together research and guests, but the marketing efforts behind the group thinkers, Suzanne, Ronnie and others for their work on this and every episode of Group Thinkers.